Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Cher Mitchell on October 5, 2020. Cher holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Indigenous Studies and has traveled to more than 40 countries, including being a guest of the Berber nomads in the Spanish Sahara, the Aborigines in far northern Queensland, Australia, and the Bribri in Costa Rica's rainforest. Cher has worked in various media for 20 years, including documentary film production for Canadian broadcasting company Radio and TV, and feature newspaper and magazine writing. She's the author of a memoir called The Bridegroom from Baghdad, which we feature in this interview. I started the interview by asking Cher where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I grew up in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, and my parents had a house that was just in front of a church where on Sundays we'd see everybody traipsing off to church except for my dad. My dad was in World War II and I think he just kind of gave up on, on religion. He was happy to see us go to church, but he never he never did go. My mom went to church once in a while, and I went through confirmation classes at one point and thought I was ready to be confirmed. But when I really thought about it, I thought, no, I don't really, I'm somehow I'm not getting this. So later on, another year later, I took the classes again and thought, okay, I'm ready now. I was in the ceremony, the minister, who was father of a friend of mine, put his hand on my head and he said very quietly, what took you so long? Instantly I thought, I've made the wrong decision. It wasn't that I didn't believe in Christ, I certainly did, but I just felt like the teachings of the faith weren't so relevant to me since they were 2,000 years old. I just, I just didn't have faith, but I, I had an inkling, I had a wanting for a yearning for it. One day I was walking just past the church and I had this thought that came into my head and it was, what would happen if Christ returned while I was alive? Would I recognize him? And that was kind of a sobering thought. I think that kids that age maybe are, have an inclination to be ideal, to have idealism. And I, I just got excited about the thought of living in a time when Christ would be alive. It was an entertaining thought for me. You know, religion wasn't a huge, it was more of a social event, I would say, in my neighborhood. It seemed to me, anyhow. Just wondering what it would be like to be around, so to speak, when Christ returned. Did that sort of stick with you as you were growing older and going through your spiritual journey? Well, I guess in a sense, I had watched a movie called The Nun's Story, and I was absolutely captivated by it. That story, it seemed, faith seemed so appealing and so fresh and clean, and I yearned for it, but I just didn't know how to get it. I just had no idea how to get it, and I would sometimes drive by mental institutions with my my family in the car, and I would think, I bet a lot of the people are in there because they don't have any purpose or meaning to their life. They don't know what they're alive for, and I felt the same way. I felt like I was kind of floundering. 
didn't know if I belonged because I didn't know what I could contribute and I wanted to contribute something. Can you describe for us being in that place to obtaining a faith? Yeah, for me, uh, I took nursing after high school because I wanted to travel and it seemed like a good job to have. So I went up north to a small mining town where most of my patients were swampy Cree or indigenous, indigenous or Native Americans, you would call them in the United States, I believe. Mm-hmm. And these people had faith. These people had spirit. These people were so long-suffering. They had poverty. They had all kinds of issues that had come as a result of contact with the white world. Yet they were so accepting of their challenges and their difficulties. I just was deeply, deeply impressed with them. And I didn't know the world word spiritual at the time, but they were deeply spiritual people. There was one family, for example, whose house had burned down in a fire. The mother of the family had died, and the father and the two little kids were badly burned, and they were in the hospital where I was working, and they were just so patient in their suffering. It just blew my mind, really. So after I saved up enough money, I went to, I took a boat to Spain, and then from there went down into Morocco, and then ultimately over to the Canary Islands and then a boat to the Spanish Sahara, and we got stuck on the desert, and the Berber nomads looked after us. And I, I had never heard of Islam really before. I'd heard of it, but I had not, no clue about what it was, and I had never met a Muslim person in my life. But these people were so pure-hearted and so kind, and five times a day they were down on their hands and knees praying, and I was deeply moved by them. And when I came back to Canada, I thought, okay, I'm going to, I was looking for something. I, I didn't think it was religion, but I was definitely looking for something meaningful. I moved to Newfoundland, which is on the east coast of Canada. And I thought maybe the people there would be back to what it was all about, which I had concluded was love and unity. But when I got there, I was really disillusioned because there was, it was kind of a mess. Economically, people were hungry the um, pulp mill had closed down and people were suffering and they had large families sometimes up to 10 kids i just felt badly for them and i i was despairing of ever finding anything and i would come out of the hospital after work and the passage from the bible from the psalms i will look up into the hills from whence cometh my help my help cometh from the lord played over and over in my mind And one day I decided I would go into this drug crisis center and see if I could maybe work there instead of at the hospital. I was feeling pretty discouraged. And there I met an indigenous person by the name of Sean Gabriel. And he told me about the Baha'i faith. And he had a picture of a painting of Abdul Baha, who was the son of the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah. He had a painting of Abdul Baha that he had done himself. And he told me about the teachings and It resonated with me. I was leery of it initially. He took me to some meetings. I just began to feel really moved by the teachings. I wasn't sure if I even believed in God, but I kind of took a leap. This man I met who was a Baha'i, his name was Gordon Oseworthy. He was blind and and he was a Baha'i, but he, he was very intuitive. He was a bit of a rebel. He had 
traveled through the bayou hitchhiking, and he said to me, Sherry, you're sitting on the fence. High faith is like an ocean. Jump in, and you're going to spend the rest of your life learning about it. And I'll be here if you need me. Just call on me. So I trusted him, and I made a leap, and I became a Baha'i. The friend's home, I had learning about the Baha'i faith. They have what's called firesides, which are informal discussions. I left their house that night, and I lay down on the snowbank overlooking the ocean, the port, and I just thought, God, if, if there is a God, will you please show me a sign? I was expecting a comet or something, but I didn't see Anyway, I began to say prayers, because as Baha'is, we're supposed to say, we have a, an obligatory prayer that we're supposed to say each day, a choice of one of a few. And I began to say prayers. I read one book, actually, called Warriors of the Rainbow, and it was about indigenous prophecies of the coming together of all the nations. And I believed that that was talking about Baha'u'llah and his teachings. So I became extremely confirmed in my belief, ultimately. And I read actually another book and, and on my way back to Winnipeg on the train from Newfoundland. And in the appendices of that book, there was Christian prophecies fulfilled by Baha'u'llah's coming. And it was like a light bulb went off in my head. I thought, oh my goodness, Baha'u'llah is the return of Christ. And I, I absolutely believe that. And that was... 50 odd years ago, and I'm still learning and growing, trying to grow. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'll go back to your travels. What led you to those countries, Spain, Morocco, etc.? What drew you in that direction when you traveled? I think interest in people, interest in knowing how life was for other people. And why Spain? Morocco. Why Spain? Mm -hmm. Because it was going to be warm. I took a boat from New York ah, to Spain. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> that makes sense. Escaping winter. It was January when I got on that boat. Mm -hmm. I'm certainly not an academic. I like to learn through exchange with people. And when we went to, with um, my family, we went to Australia a number of times. My brother, one of my brothers lives there. But on one particular trip, we wanted to meet the Aborigine Baha'is in far northern Queensland. And that was really mind-blowing. I remember we met these two ladies. They were both named after flowers. One was Daisy, and I forget the other one's name. But they said to me that when they had told their families they'd become Baha'is, their families were surprised. And they said that it was the first time they had been treated as equals and that attracted them to the Baha'i faith, that there was so much respect for them. And actually, in the Baha'i teachings, there is one racial prophecy that I'm aware of, and that has to do with the indigenous, or what were then called Indian people, and that was that they would lead the world spiritually when they came under the shadow of the true educator. I'm paraphrasing, but I believed that totally because I had witnessed that amongst the people that I knew who were indigenous in Canada. And those Aborigines in Australia were of the same ilk. They've all suffered tremendously at the hands of the colonizers. I spent time in Costa Rica. I made a documentary, a television documentary, about the Bribri Baha'i community in Mohancito, in the rainforest of Costa Rica. 
And there, that was a trip of a lifetime, honestly. It was so incredible. These people said the Baha'i teachings aren't just for us. We need to share them with the world. They had taken them and they had incorporated them into their lives and into their community. Their community was organized around the Baha'i calendar, essentially, and and of being support to each other and to the community at large. I understand you've traveled to more than 40 countries was some of or all of this travel part of your spiritual journey? I think in a way, mm-hmm. yeah, in a way it was a quest to see how other people lived and to try to take from them what would benefit me and us in this part of the world. In the Baha'i faith, sometimes young people, before they head off into careers in college, will do something called a year of service, and my daughter spent nine months in the Marshall Islands. There we met with the indigenous people too, and their way of being, they're so kind, so friendly, so encouraging. When we arrived on this one particular island, the whole community gathered at night and sang to us, sang a welcoming song, gave us gifts of things they'd made from palm leaves and various other items. It's just, you know, we have so much to learn from these other cultures, and I'm so privileged to have had an exchange with with a few of them. Cher, you had written a memoir called The Bridegroom from Baghdad, which, the bridegroom being your husband, Rizwan Magbel. I'm wondering if we could start by you telling us how you met your husband. Actually, the truth is we don't know how we met or where we met, (laughs) as odd as that sounds. And we always thought we would figure it out while he was alive. He passed away in 2013. But I had heard this story about his father and his encounter with a robber in the middle of the night. And that story had so captivated me that when I saw my late husband's name on a national convention delegate list, 1996 in April in Toronto. I saw his name. I said to my friend Karen, Rizwan Mockbell's here. And she said, who is he? And I said, I don't know who he is. I just know a story about his father and that he lived in England and that he was married. She said to me, well, is he married now? And I said, (laughs) I have no idea. She said, we'll find out. And I said, no, Karen, if you're so interested, you find out. Anyway, I, I got someone to point out who Rizwan was to me. And I went over to him. He was doing the devotional program for that convention. And he was in a little booth, a sound booth. And I thought, well, I'll just go over and ask him if he this story that I know about his father is true and where I might have heard it. So I went over and I began to tell him the story. And in the story, his father comes home late at night. He knows there's an intruder. This is in Iran, in Tehran, by the way, around the early 1940s. He knows there's an intruder because there's a light moving around. And he very quietly goes in. His name is Kehosro Mokbel. Quietly goes into the into his house. And there is a person who has spread out a tablecloth in the living room and is going around putting valuables on the tablecloth. And they're going to wrap them up and take them away. So Rizwan's dad, Kehosro, quietly comes behind the robber and he begins to put items on the tablecloth 
And when he sees that there's a ro- that someone else is trying to take his loot, this robber goes crazy and says, "Stop it! I got here first. These are from these are for me." And Rizwan's dad says, "No, no, you don't understand. This is my house. These are my items, and you must really need them. Therefore, I'm helping you." Well, with that, the man broke down and cried and shared his tales of woe. His family were sick and ailing and. They were poor, and he was destitute and was desperate. So Rizwan's dad said, well, if what you're telling me is true, that's a very poor way to solve your problems. But it's late. I'm tired, and you must be tired. Why don't you sleep on that couch, and I'll sleep on this one. And in the morning, we'll see if I can help you get yourself sorted out. So with that, Rizwan's father lay down and went to sleep, and the robber was just left lying there thinking, I could have been a murderer which he well could have been. Anyway, early in the morning, Kehosra woke up and snuck off to the market and came back, and all the way he was coming back, he was thinking, oh, I hope the robber's still there, I hope he's still there, I hope he's still there. And when he got in his home, there was the man sitting up, looking very sheepish. So they had breakfast together. Then Rizwan's dad turned around and handed the robber something. He said, I brought you these at the market. If you like, you can set up a little stand there. I can lend you a cart. And you can sell these items, and with the money you make, you can buy some more items. And after you've built up your business, you can pay me back. So that's exactly what happened. That story just blew my mind because of Kehosro's faith in his fellow human being and his kindness and compassion. So when I relayed that story to Rizwan, he just looked at me. He told me later he thought, oh, no, not another pickup line. (laughs) (laughs) But it turned out it was, actually. (laughs) And it wasn't until after he died that, and after I had finished the book, that a friend sent me a photograph, and it was a photograph of a group of about 50 people standing at a gathering just outside of Toronto. It was a summer school, and at one end of the pack of people is Rizwan, at the other end is me. So maybe I heard him tell that story to somebody at that gathering. I don't know, but that's how we met. So maybe you could describe Rizwan a bit for us, like where he grew up, what were the circumstances he grew up under, and that kind of thing. Sure. So Rizwan was born in a town, a small border town called Hanagin. It's between, it's in the Iraq, inside Iraq, but it's on the Iraq-Iran border. And his father had come from Tehran, had moved from Tehran to Baghdad in the 1940s. And his mother's family had moved from Isfahan, Iran, three generations before to Baghdad. Rizwan was one of three children. He was the second child. And Hanagin is an important little community. It was a dusty little community, poor community. And it was important because Baha'u'llah, who was exiled as a prisoner of the Ottoman Empire, passed through Hanagin. So that's where Rizwan was born. And they didn't have much money. And there was discrimination against his father because his name, Kehosro Makbel, was clearly a Persian name. And they were Persians were not popular in this community or in Iraq in general. So he was always the first to be laid off in his jobs and had 
you know, a difficult time having a steady income and often had to travel for work. And Rizwan's mother was a school teacher. She was an early teacher, a, a graduate of the University of Baghdad. She, by the time Rizwan was going to school, was the vice principal of the school, and she kept a pretty firm hand on her son, who was smart and sassy and cheeky. And there was a story he told me about this one time that she caught him not memorizing the, in, the poetry he was supposed to be memorizing every night. And she came to his classroom and had a word with his teacher. And what Rizwan's plan normally was, was to memorize the poem as other people were reciting their poems. He was that smart that he could just pick it up quickly. But that particular day, he had to say the poem first. And of course, he didn't know even what the title of the thing was. <laughs> he got into lots of scraps like that. But I think it was a pretty happy childhood. One time, their aunt, their grandmother, Malka, came from Baghdad to visit. And the family were very, very short on funds, but they didn't want to dilute their hospitality or let on to Malka that they were struggling. So every night when she would go to bed, they would quietly take pieces of furniture out of the house and sell them. And she didn't know, you know, she didn't observe that and wasn't aware of what was going on. And when she went home, a few days later, a postman came to the door and said that there was a money mail order for Kehosra at the post office, and Kehosra couldn't believe it because he said that wouldn't it was a mistake, it couldn't possibly be for him. And then he shot his wife a look like, did you tell your mother? Well, she had, your, had not told her mother. Anyway, finally he discovered that this money was coming from someone who had he had lent money to years before in Tehran. And that person had never paid him back. But that person said in his letter that he had received three nights in a row he'd had a dream. In the dream, he was told to pay Hosro Mokbel the money you owe him. And after three nights of it, he finally decided that, finally remembered, yes, that he did owe Kehosra money, sent it. So that money meant the difference between going hungry and, and not going hungry. So there were, there were challenging times for him growing up. He wanted to be an actor. That was his aim and plan. But his parents didn't encourage it. So then he decided his second best thing would be to become a doctor. And he was excited about that. But in his matriculation exams, he had an unfortunate incident happen. Someone threw in a kind of a spitball of exam questions, exam answers and it landed on the floor beside him. And it was intended for the fellow in front of him. And Rizwan called the invigilator over and that person believed it wasn't for him and he took the answers away. And the fellow in front of Rizwan turned around and pulled a switchblade and aimed it at him and said, I'm gonna get you, basically. So Rizwan really finished his exam quickly didn't answer half of the questions and ran all the way home, took a half an hour run in short stride and did so miserably that he couldn't get into medical school. So he instead went into medical science and it turned out to, he became a world leader in medical science in the field of inflammation. His focus was on a particular white blood cell called the eosinophil. 
So he always credited that fellow with changing the course of his life. And actually, they were in line together one time a little bit later, I think at college. The fellow turned around and Rizwan said to him, do you recognize me? And the fellow said, I do, and I'm so sorry <laughs> for acting the way I did. Anyway, it turned out well for Rizwan. He had a, a career that he loved, and he made a, a really significant contribution when he was bringing on students to mentor in his, as masters or PhD students, he would ask them if they had a noble goal. He wanted them to have a goal of something worthy and not just making money. His own goal was to help prevent any child from suffering from asthma anymore, and certainly to prevent asthmatic deaths. Why did Rizwan leave Iraq? After Rizwan finished university at the University of Baghdad, he went to England to do his master's. He could have gone to the States. He had a few offers, but England was going to be the cheapest, most inexpensive place for him to go. So he went and he got his master's in medical parasitology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And then his sister was getting married. Sheriff was getting married. So he went back for her wedding. When he was en route to Iraq, he was having second thoughts because the, fa the family had moved from Hanagin to, to Baghdad, by the way, when he was about 15. He just relived the five bloody coups he had witnessed, and he, he just had a sinking feeling that it was a mistake to be going back. As soon as he landed, his passport was taken and examined, and they said, where was your exit stamp? You needed an exit stamp to leave Iraq. Rizwan said, I don't I don't know. I didn't I didn't know. I didn't have one, I guess. And they took his passport and said, basically that's it. You're not you're not getting out of this country again. And his mom, Hajar, knew that things were going to be getting rough for the Baha'is in Iraq. And she insisted that he find a way out. And kind of miraculously, one of his brother Sermon's friend's father, or uncle perhaps, I forget which now, worked for the office that would deal with passports and said to Rizwan's brother's friend that if Rizwan would agree to leave the country as soon as he got the right stamp on his passport, that he would try to help him. So Rizwan, of course, agreed with that and was very grateful. This man knew that the Baha'is were being persecuted, not because of any reason other than their faith, and believed that was unjust. So Rizwan had to wait around for a couple of weeks, and then he finally got the call that the stamp was in his passport and he needed to leave the next morning. So he and his brother went off and he got a ticket and left the country and never actually was able to go back because when he did get to England, he later learned that his mother and his cousin Iqbal, who, who was the top surgical student in the country at the time, were both imprisoned uh, along with 15 men and a total of 10 women. In fact, you interviewed one of the women that was in prison with Hajar, Wakil, and Iqbal, Abdul Razak. You interviewed Anissa Abdul Razak Abbas about her book, Without Hesitation. And she mentions in her book that Hajar Wakil and Iqbal, she mentions them both a few times. So they were in prison for six years and four months. So Rizwan 
was never able to go back to Iraq. He was sentenced to life in prison in absentia. And he was told, warned to not believe anything that was said to him about his mother being in dire straits or whatever. They felt that he might be tricked into going back to Iraq and then he would never see the light of day again. So while his family stayed in Iraq, he alone was out of the country and feeling very guilty and very, very sad for his family and worried for them all the time. Maybe that's some of the challenges that my next question is going to refer to because in your memoir, which I'll just repeat the title for folks, The Bridegroom from Baghdad, you say that learning more about your new relatives back in Iraq was a challenging quest. And I guess what you're describing is really Rizwan's challenge for having to leave his family in those situations. But then I guess you yourself had some challenges once you married Rizwan. I guess you took it on to really meet the challenge to get to know your new family in Baghdad. It's true, I did. And it was sort of an interesting thing that happened. We were in Haifa, Israel, the Baha'i World Center, and actually in Akka, across the bay where Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, is buried. And I had my head in prayer on the threshold of Baha'u'llah's shrine, resting on rose petals, and I heard this voice say, you should be pray to be worthy of association with your husband's family, basically was what was said. So that's where it all started, but... Maybe I could read a passage to you from my book about this? Sure. It's a chapter called Casting My In-Laws in Words. And this is a quotation from Baha'u'llah that I start with. Oh, my brother, journey upon these plains in the spirit of search, not in blind imitation. A true wayfarer will not be kept back by the bludgeon of words, nor debarred by the warning of illusions. Like a kid whose eyes are glued to the candy store window after the shop is closed, in the early days of my marriage to Rizwan, I yearned to meet my new Iraqi family. Traveling to Iraq was out of the question. As a Westerner, I would have attracted too much attention and put the family in danger. Rizwan's life in prison sentence meant he couldn't go either. As Baha'is, his family weren't allowed travel documents. It was after a surprising prompt that I began to prod Rizwan in earnest to tell me stories of his family. In September 1998, Rizwan and I, along with his daughter Marianne, were conducting a three-day visit to the Baha'i World Center in Haifa, Israel. We were praying in the Shrine of Baha'u'llah. As I lay my forehead upon the scarlet rose petals arranged on the carpeted threshold of that inner sanctum, a commanding male voice inside my head said, you should pray to become worthy of your association with Rizwan's family. Of course I should, I thought. Why haven't I thought of that before? Despite agreeing with that sentiment, I couldn't figure out what praying to become worthy actually meant. Since work carried out in the spirit of service is deemed worship in the faith, I determined to strive to discover and record the stories that link Rizwan's family to the earliest days of the faith. It was the only way I could think of to get to know his family. Gathering that history for Rizwan's children and grandchildren and mine further propelled my drive. 
Also, I believe that in the realms beyond, we will associate with those who we have loved in this world. And as I contemplated the mysteries of my future beyond the grave, I decided I didn't want to miss out on the opportunity to meet Rizwan's deceased family on account of my laziness and not making an effort to get to know them. My initial research source was Rizwan, of course. Like his father before him, he is a great storyteller. Later on, I came across published material about family members and met others like Latifa Toeg and Ahmad Motlak, who knew his family in Iraq. I began to keep a diary of my findings. I even rented a humble room with chinks in the wall that let the cold air in, in a church in Edmonton where I took refuge to work on what had become my passion, capturing Rizwan's family in words. My approach to this task, however, was so far from systematic that over a prolonged number of years, I felt as if I was trying to collect and preserve melting snowflakes. What follows is a sketch of my discoveries about Rizwan's family, some of which he didn't even know. So you were able to reach out to Rizwan's family by telephone, even though it was sporadic, and get to know them, correct? Yes, I'm so grateful that his sister Sharaf and his brother Sermon speak English. And these days I spend quite a bit of time talking with his cousin Iqbal, who also speaks English perfectly. <laughs> but I, I haven't been able to go and visit. And at this point I'm 72 and have health issues, and I'm not sure that yeah. I'll ever make it, but... It, with the advent of Zoom, it's helped a lot to get to know them better. Right. Yeah, because in the book, things were so sporadic. It was during the uh, Iraq War, and things were so chaotic and dangerous. I believe the story concluded where, I can't remember which Rizwan's siblings were able to come and visit for a very short time in Canada. Yes, it's true. So we were on sabbatical in Australia for a year, and Rizwan was getting sicker and sicker, and we finally came back to Canada in 2006. By that time, the Iraq war had kind of subsided enough that travel documents were a possibility for Rizwan's sister and her husband. Rizwan had not seen his sister. They hadn't seen each other for 35 years. She was determined that she would see him before his surgery. It turned out that he had sinus cancer, and the surgery was supposed to be 18 to 24 hours. And there was a threat of cognitive impairment as a result. So this cancer had eaten into a lot of the bones in his head, and they needed to be replaced with titanium. And it was just kind of incomprehensible to her that he would die or become mentally impaired before she would see him. So... She did everything she could from that end to get that she and her husband, Akil, travel documents. And my daughter, Colby, came up from California many, many times to help us. And she worked hard on, on trying to get the necessary documents. And others arose to help, too. It was just amazing how many people helped. One fellow from New York actually was trying to help us. And he had somebody apply for a job in his office who happened to be the niece of the ambassador to Jordan. You know, just things that, as Baha'is, we call these kinds of things confirmations. Confirmations that we are not alone and that there are unseen forces helping us do what needs to be done. So Rizwan had to be at the hospital, I think it was at 5.30 in the morning on the said day of his operation. And his sister and her husband, against all odds, they flew into Vancouver 
they missed the connection that was to take them to Edmonton. And by some great miracle, we were able to get them on a on another flight, and they arrived at 1.30 in the morning. We went out to the airport, and Rizwan's friend, Koteba Hamid, a fellow physician, had said to him, don't cry. When you see your sister, don't cry, because your nasal passages will get even more swollen, and it will make the surgery much more difficult. So he didn't cry, but she sure did, and so did Akil, her husband. Yeah, it was incredible. I think they were with us 55 days, something like that. Mm-hmm. And getting out of Iraq had been very, very difficult. There were two or three buses, and their bus was the only bus that wasn't searched by rifle holding who knows who. Yeah, so when they went back, I mean, who who would go back right. to such a war-torn country? But they wanted to go back because they wanted to be a part of rebuilding their country. They loved their country. They're very faithful, loyal citizens. So they did go back. And in 2007, Rizwan had recovered from his surgery by then. We were going on pilgrimage to the High World Centre with Rizwan's two children from who live in Scotland and England, Sam and Marianne. And en route, we went to Turkey in Istanbul. And his brother and his brother's son, Sermon and his son Nebras met us there and we had five days with them, which was absolutely amazing. When we met Sermon and Nebras at the airport, we stood for three hours with Rizwan's cousin waiting as the door opened, would open and a few people would trickle out and we were just glued to the door trying to catch sight of Sermon and Nebras. And finally Sermon came through. The door and Rizwan said it was like looking at his father. Mm-hmm. He hadn't seen him for 35 or more years, and this skinny teenager had turned into a portly elderly man. And as we walked along at the airport after we greeted each other, the two men were holding hands. And it was such a sweet, precious moment. It really, really moved me. It was um, not something you would see very often here in this North America. Very tender. Things have evolved in Iraq and Baghdad since 2007, 2008, and whatever. How are they doing now in Iraq, Rizwan's siblings and family? Well, they moved to Kurdistan. Um, Rizwan's brother is an engineer, and, and the only work he was able to get in Baghdad for years was would have been through American companies, and that was difficult for him for various reasons. And they they moved to Kurdistan. It's been a challenge to eke out a living, I think. But um, they are well, and they are very busy serving the community at large as best they can. Actually, Rizwan's brother was asked to be the delegate to meet the Pope when he was in Iraq, in Kurdistan recently. And we have a picture of him standing on the runway speaking to the Pope, which was really exciting for us. His sister now has been nursing her husband, Akil. He has been very, very sick for a long time. So they're struggling, but they're very always positive and cheerful. As I mentioned, I've had the great bounty of talking with Rizwan's cousin, Iqbal, the surgeon, frequently, and that is wonderful. They just don't complain. Actually, I was really very grateful to read Anissa Abdul-Razak's 
book without hesitation because I got so many more details about how they survived in the prison and what their their attitudes and approach were to their suffering over that six years and four months. Whatever happened to Rizwan's mother? She passed away on January the 1st, 2001. Actually, she was out of prison after six years and managed to get a visa to go to Scotland and visited with Rizwan and his former wife and Sam. Marianne wasn't yet born. She was born soon thereafter. That was the last time he saw her. But um, they talked on the phone from time to time, but they, you know, for years had to talk in code. They couldn't mention Baha'i. They couldn't mention anything about the Baha'i World Center in Israel. This one time, there was a big gap between when Rizwan had spoken to her and he was apologizing. The last time they had spoken, they had shared everything that was in their hearts. And she said, you've got nothing to be upset about. We said everything we needed to say. And he told her he was going to Israel for a conference. And she said, take me with you, meaning metaphorically, take me with you in spirit because the Baha'is in Iraq and Iran have never been able to go to the Baha'i World Center in Israel. And so he felt like he was taking her in spirit when he went. But she passed away peacefully in her sleep at her son Sermon's home. But the thing about these women prisoners and all of those prisoners is they would have been released from prison had they only recanted their faith. All they had to say is, I'm a Muslim, I'm not a Baha'i. But none of them did, not one of them did. And I just think, well, it speaks so highly of their character that they had such strong faith and such strong principles. What's the situation for the Baha'is in Iraq today? Well, as much as I know, they're they're able to function now where they hadn't been for many years. All of their books had been confiscated, and now they can they can assemble. In the Baha'i world, we have sort of four core activities going on in our own Baha'i community and at large with the larger community. And they're engaged in all of those. Those are children's classes, junior youth classes, study classes for youth and adults, and prayer gatherings. And they're very engaged in the same things that all the rest of the Baha'i world are engaged in. So they're very grateful for that. And they remain in their country because of their love and their commitment to their country. As you said, Cher Rizwan suffered from sinus cancer. Can you describe for us how he was able to deal with that? Rizwan was a great reframer of things. I remember one time before his cancer, he had a car accident and he was strapped to a headboard on the street while the emergency vehicles were getting ready to go to the hospital and so on, the ambulance. And he said that he thought about Baha'u'llah's suffering. Baha'u'llah was in prison and exile for 40 years and his suffering was immense. And Rizwan said, thank you to God for allowing him one drop of that suffering, one minuscule amount of that suffering. And he approached his cancer in the same way when someone said to him, why would you get cancer? You're such a, a wonderful soul and improved the lives of so many people. He said, well, why wouldn't I? You know, like, what's, what's special about me? He just 
he just reframed everything to the positive and always was very, very grateful. Anyway, he, he didn't die of sinus cancer. The cancer migrated during surgery, probably, to his lungs. And it was lung cancer in the end that, that got him. He didn't want to die, but if that was God's will for him, then he had 100% trust in God. And in the end, the last five months, he was in palliative care in a hospital in Winnipeg. He was just radiant, and the nurses would come in and say, what's different about this room? It's the same room as it is. At, you know, all the other rooms are the same exact room. But in here, we feel it's almost like a sacred spot, a holy spot. He really changed the atmosphere with his attitude. He was just so courageous and so faith-filled. And we look to everything that came our way as confirmations that we were not alone and that we were supported. And there was this massive wave of love and prayers worldwide. He had affected the lives of hundreds and hundreds of people, not only his students, but Baha'i youth and young people all over the world. He was quite a charismatic soul. He was filled with love and intuition about people's needs and wants. He did a great job. Well, Cher, I want to thank you so much for sharing the story of your bridegroom from Baghdad. (laughs) Thank you so much for the opportunity to do so, Warren. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Cher Mitchell, author of the memoir, The Bridegroom from Baghdad. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel A Baha'i Perspective. You can also find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Like a sphere, no propaganda to try to up a hand this. Cause man, I'm loving this peace. Man, man, I'm loving this peace. Man, man, I'm loving this peace. I don't need no leader that's gonna force feeder. Concept to make me think I need her. Fear my brother and fear my sister and shoot my neighbor with my big missile. If I had an enemy, enemy, if I had an enemy, enemy, if I had an enemy, then my enemy's gonna try to come and kill me. Cause I'm his enemy. There's one tribe, y'all. One tribe, y'all. One tribe, y'all. Forget about all that evil, forget about all that evil, that evil, that 
Forget about all that evil, that evil that they feed you. Remember that we want people. We all want people. Want people, want people, want people. Want people, want people, want people. Want people, want people, want people. One tribe, one tribe, one tribe, one time, one planet, one race, one love, one people, one. Too many things that's causing one. To forget about the main cause, connect and uniting. But the evil is seeding and alive in us, so our weapons are colliding and our peace is sinking like Poseidon. But we know that the one, the evil one's threatened by the sum. So we come and try to separate the sum. But he dumb, he didn't know we had a will to overcome. Rejuvenate by the beating of the drum. Come together by the cycle of the hum. Freedom when all become one, forever. One tribe, y'all. One tribe, y'all. Tribe, y'all. We all want people. Let's catch amnesia. Forget about all that evil. Forget about all that evil. That evil that they feed you. Let's catch amnesia. Forget about all that evil. That evil that they feed you. Remember that we want people. We all want people. 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 Want love. Want blood. Want people. One heart, one beat, we equal. Connected like the internet, united, that's how we do. Let's break what so we see through. Let love and peace lead you. We could overcome the complication, cause we need to. Help each other, make these changes. Brother, sister, rearrange this way of thinking that we can change this bad condition. Break, use your mind and not your greed. Let's connect and then proceed. This is something I believe. We are one, we're all just people. One tribe, y'all. One tribe, y'all. One tribe, y'all. We all one people. Let's cast amnesia. Forget about all that evil. Forget about all that evil. That evil that they feed you. <laughs> Let's catch amnesia. Let's catch amnesia. Forget about all that evil. That evil that they feed you. <laughs> one tribe, y'all. We, 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 one tribe, y'all. One, one, one people. 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 Let's, let's catch amnesia. Lord, help me out. Trying to figure out what it's all about. Cause we're one in the same. Same joy, same pain. And I hope that you're there when I need ya. Cause maybe we need amnesia. And I don't wanna sound like a preacher, but we need to be one. One world, one love, one passion. One tribe, one understanding. Cause you and me. Can become one. 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 And one this we believe. And it all comes together.
poets without words. That's how I start my verse. With my eyes closed, on this page my pen bleeds. With the words of unity and peace. You see an image of you and me. And I paint you with the colors of my dreams. So we run together with these beautiful feet. And spread it to the world like a shadow of a spring. Our vision is shaken by our differences. And oneness we believe. And we all hold hands. And it all comes together. How exquisite it is. How exquisite it is. How exquisite it is.